Glocal, podcast on locally incubated global technology powerhouses. This is your host, Enes. We had our first international episode with Alex from Competera. They're based out of Ukraine, and this is going to be our second one. But this is rather different because for the first time, we'll not be hosting an entrepreneur, but a venture capitalist. Martin from Flashpoint Ventures will tell us a bit about themselves um, and their mandate. We're going to have some funny discussions over there. And then we'll dive into different Central Eastern European ecosystems and go one by one covering Hungary, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, Ukraine, and Turkey. Now let's get to it. Can you tell us briefly about what you do at Flashpoint Ventures? So at Flashpoint Ventures, I'm actually responsible for scouting deals across the Central Eastern European region. Uh, And I have uh, a couple of countries that I cover. So I cover Austria, Romania, Hungary uh, and Bulgaria. So um, Flashpoint Ventures, you guys were called Buran previously. First of all, what caused the name change? I mean, why did you change the name from Buran to Flashpoint? So it's an interesting question. So basically, Buran, you know, when it was founded in 2012, it was sort of uh, a more, you know, CIS focused fund. And we just, uh, we just evolved so much in the years uh, ever since that, that we just thought that we'll need a different name to represent this change. Also, we launched a venture debt fund, which is special in the region because no one else is doing it. It's sort of a debt instrument, which has like a warrant portion which is something that is, uh, you know, sort of unique in the region. And we just want to have more of these products and we just thought like if we do Flashpoint, then we'll incorporate all these sub-brands under it. And then uh, it will be like best to call uh, Flashpoint instead of Buran. So at Flashpoint Ventures, you guys kind of do Series A. I mean, it's seed in the US, but would be Series A in our region. Can you tell us a bit about your sweet spot in terms of investing and uh, what kind of industries or sectors you guys are focusing on? So we're not actually very focused on any kind of industry or sector. We're more focused on revenues and metrics. We actually come from M&A backgrounds. So our idea is basically uh, that if a company has revenues and the metrics are right, then it must mean that the team and all the other things are also right. Uh, At least this is the theory. Of course, you know, you need to look at all the other stuff as well. You need to have like a complex system. We actually have a scoring card that we use that has at least, you know, 10 different perspectives that we look at. And then uh, we judge based on that. And then the other thing, what we like is cultural proximity. So what we believe in is that actually the companies uh, and the founders that run the companies should come from the same region as we do. And then we actually understand each other way better. When, you know, push comes to shove, it actually matters a lot if you understand the other person. Because, you know, sometimes cultural things can actually cause a lot of, uh, you know, difference and pain as well. So... I think we believe that this is an important factor. But you guys have a weird definition of your region. I mean, um, you do Central Europe, but you don't do Germany. You don't do France. But then again, you do Israel. Can you tell me a bit about kind of your geographic focus as Flashpoint Ventures and then um, your focus as Martin? We're actually focusing on this diamond-shaped region. So it's uh, starting with Austria, going up to Finland, then uh, until Russia, and then going down until Israel. So again, what the common denominator with these countries is is that, uh, you know, there is cultural proximity. So all of these people, they tend to think the same way. Even Austrians, which is surprising. But <laughs> why, why, why would you say even Austrians? Traditionally, like, uh, Austria belongs sort of more to Western Europe than to Eastern Europe. It's sort of a gateway. And people st- still think, uh, you know, more like Eastern Europeans compared to, let's say, Germans or like Swiss. Um, so this is, this is the common denominator. And we just feel that, you know, there are so many unicorns out there. There's so many good companies out there. And we just observe that most of these people actually have 
someone on their you know, core team, founders, CTOs most often uh, that are coming from our regions, you know, looking at WhatsApp, looking at Revolut, looking at all these other companies, it's just uh, there's a lot of potential from uh, with people coming from this region. I'm going to ask you about these um, diaspora or um, expat deals that you guys are doing because I know that you guys do that frequently. But what I want to ask you first is you guys are really traction focused. You have these parameters where you only invest in a company after they do 50K MRR. So you'd never even look into a deal who's a company who's doing less than 50K monthly revenues. Um, so my question is, I get the uh, I get the theory behind that, meaning you want to understand unit economics, you want to understand the scalability of the customer acquisition channels and stuff like that. But then again, a lot of the moonshot ideas or companies that are in really fast-growing industries and fast-growing verticals have huge revenue multiples and they raise seed, series A, even series B rounds, even before they reach 50K MRR. So do you think that um, you guys are losing some deals just because of that one parameter that you guys set for yourself? I mean, for sure, we're, you know, we're not looking at all of the deals, but I would correct you a bit there because, I mean, we are actually looking at all the companies. We just decide not to invest until the company reach, uh, reaches 50K. So that doesn't mean that we're not tracking. We actually have this system where we track you know, thousands of companies periodically sort of with an automated uh, outreach system. Um, so that's actually very useful because some of the investments that we made recently are, uh, are coming off of this like track companies that we're tracking, you know, like one, two years. And then once they mature, we can engage. Uh, but coming back to your question, of course, you know, we're missing on some of the moonshot ideas, but with moonshot ideas, the problem is that, you know, you can actually, uh, much easier just go wrong than go right. So our approach is more of a downside protection, sort of a risk management approach which sort of comes from traditional private equity and, you know, more like portfolio management uh, than like traditional VC investing. So we're looking at our portfolio as a, as, as sort of a, as, as an asset manager would, and we're just protecting some of the downside. Yeah. I mean, typically VCs follow a power low distribution curve. So that's why they want to invest into moonshot ideas. But then again, all this best practice on VC is from the U S but um, our region meaning Central Eastern Europe have different dynamics than the U S. So, I get that maybe uh, the right way to follow a venture capital model in Central Eastern Europe wouldn't be a power law distribution, but rather focusing on minimizing your downside. That would also cap your upside, sure, but you would be making positive returns. But not necessarily. I mean, it, there is no kind of law that says that one, if the company doesn't have revenues, it should have like a high valuation. And then it's that, that company that is going to be like the next unicorn. So a next unicorn might as well just be like a company that is hugely you know not profitable but makes like huge revenues and growth over like periods of time so i think revenues and all these metrics unit economics growth rate they actually show if the company is good enough or not interesting i would debate that otherwise i mean i would say that if a company is able to do 50k mrr just to ballpark that as an example um, at such an early stage that means the vertical is mature enough and potentially there are probably another 50 companies that do another 50k mrr around the world and then it might end up as a very fragmented market where um, it's not a winner takes it all market given that the vertical true but on the other hand continuing the same line of thought you would say that you know if a company doesn't generate any revenues then it's a great market right? no 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 that's for <laughs> sure not of course not. I think the, 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 the truth is somewhere in between. Yeah. Um, lastly, you've also said that you guys do a lot of diaspora deals, meaning you invest into a Hungarian founder in the US or a Russian founder in the US. What makes you believe in that thesis 
because VC, as you've also said, is a really proximity-based business and it's an access game. And if a founder is already based in the US, chances are you don't get access to the best of the best. Um, so do you believe in investing to the diaspora and how do you generate access to those deals? So we're a huge believer in diaspora investments, which we call expat entrepreneurs. Uh, the reason being that, you know, we believe that actually the, the smartest and brightest people, they go out and chase their dreams. So, and if they can't find uh, the dream at home, they will actually just go abroad and do the dream there, right? Chase investments, you know, have access to larger markets, just build a product that is like accessible for millions of people. Uh, so we're big believers in that. Uh, and, you know, regarding access, you're right. So it's an access game. But again, cultural proximity, it actually helps you to get access, right? So all of these people, they will have roots. They might, they might went to the same university before they uh, emigrated. They might, you know, have some common friends with you. Again, you know, when situations get pretty tough, it's better to have someone that understands your problems on a, on a sort of deeper level uh, as a partner. Because when, when situations get really tough, it's, it's just like, it matters. It matters a lot. Yeah, and it always gets tough. If you're a startup, even if you're doing well, it's going to get tough. It's, it's going to be on a different level, but it will be tough. And it gets tough. Yeah, you're right. So uh, what I'm saying is that, you know, of course, there are many US venture capital firms uh, that will kind of try to get in. But what our strategy is, is that we're trying to get in before these guys. And so uh, we can work together with the founders, sort of as partners, coming from the region and then, you know, uh, working together with the other venture capital funds who they, uh, you know, they also like us. Like we did a number of investments, you know, together with Y Combinator, together with NFX, together with all these big guys that, uh, that worked out pretty great. And what's your biggest success story out of Flashpoint? I mean, of course, out of Buran, um, which is what it was called before. What's the biggest success story out of the Fund One? I think if we talk about success stories out of Fund One, there is a company called Netology, which was sort of the lynda.com for the CIS region. Uh, which is an educational startup which helped uh, people to re-educate themselves and to get another job. So if you're a barista, but you're not uh, you know, satisfied with your current level of salary, you can just retrain yourself to be, you know, I don't know, like a programmer or whatever. So this, these guys, we sold them, sold them last year and uh, we, made up with, we made quite nice uh, money on that. We just believe that all these spaces that we invested in, uh, if, if you actually find other players in this in this space you can actually have similar results uh, because you can rely on your expertise that you gathered already so this guy who who founded this company he actually founded another company called learn to play which combines sort of gaming with education so it says that you know gamers uh, is actually a huge space and there is just a lot of money flowing into that space and so there will be gamers that want to spend money on being better at games so they will just uh, offer educational videos for these gamers. And then uh, with the help of that, they can become better players. But um, so the company, it's called Netology, right? Yeah, the one where, where we exited, yes. Yeah, so Netology, I guess it was CIS focused. But um, looking at your portfolio, you guys don't like um, local all, or even regional companies, meaning you don't want to invest into a Polish company that's operating just in Poland. Um, same goes for Turkey. You don't want to invest into a Turkish company that's just operating in Turkey. Is that something that you guys consider? Do you only want to invest into companies that have a global appeal? Yes, we believe in, we believe in uh, you know, globally focused companies. And there are a couple of reasons for that. The first reason is that if you're globally focused, your uh, downside is sort of protected by the currency mix that you are uh, covering. So if you're locally focused, like, you know, let's say if you have a Turkish investment, Turkish Lira devaluated like 40%. If you invest out of a dollar-based fund, you're, it's not very good for you. So if you have uh, actually the revenue mix 
at least it's like a balanced mix. It should be it should be a balanced mix. And we believe in the companies where most of the revenue is coming in US dollars or euros, depending on what the fund is denominated in. This is this is like you know traditional sort of risk management approaches. You want to put your money in a, in in something that is in the same currency, so you don't run the currency risk too much. Yeah. And that's one reason. And the other reason is that you know developing something for a small market, even if you have traction, some traction, there is a limit, so you're capped uh, on the upside. And if you shoot for larger markets, it will just like uh, help you. Uh, with the number of opportunities is just a much better space to shoot for what we're going to do next is we're going to speak about uh, the region compare different countries um first of all you are based in hungary but you are not focused on hungary what are the countries that you cover yourself within flashpoint so i myself i cover uh, hungary romania austria bulgaria and czech republic so a lot of the central eastern european countries that you guys are yeah fixed. most of them yes and what's a common trend that you see either in your deal flow or in your portfolio i mean is it more b2c or b2b um is it software or more hardware what are some of the trends in the region i think regional trends is that you know software rules so the majority of the companies what i see are software companies and this is also the case in our portfolio. So the majority of the companies are uh, software companies, mostly so focusing on software as a service. And we also have this peculiar type of like B2B2C companies. So basically uh, B2B companies selling for businesses that at the end sell for customers. We just believe that it's a good model because it actually kind of reduces our, reduces our risk, but you know, still doesn't really lose touch with the end customer because it's just like one step away. Looking in our fund and our deal flow, I would say the same, meaning we do a lot of B2B. And the reason for that is just like you guys, we want to invest into companies with a global appeal, uh, meaning technology that's say developed in Turkey, but then sold in the US or in the UK. B2B tends to be more fragmented, meaning even if you're the 10th largest player in any B2B vertical, you are big enough, you are venturable and you are exitable. Someone will acquire you. Uh, which is not the case with B2C. In B2C, a lot of these B2C markets, um, it's either winner takes it all or just a couple of winners. And to bet in a Central Eastern European or Turkish entrepreneur that he or she is going to be the largest in the world is tough because there's not, there's not that much B2C expertise within the region. And most of the success stories, at least the global success stories, have historically been B2B. So we do more B2B than B2C as well. You know, if you test your market, your local market, that is likely to be very different from a large market that you will target later on. So even if your product is successful in Hungary or Romania, it doesn't mean that you will actually be successful in uh, the US or Germany or whatever. Yeah, I think those are two really different plays. Um, when I look into our companies, I'd say 50% of them are in blue ocean and the rest 50% are in red ocean. The ones that are in red ocean start locally, then, then they try to grow regionally, meaning from Turkey, they open up office in Poland or Russia and then uh, potentially they can go to Romania, they can become a regional company. A lot of these markets are immature, right? Even though the vertical is mature enough, these markets are immature. And if you want to go and compete in the US, your competition will outkill you easily. Those are the red ocean ones. For the blue ocean ones, they are looking for early adapters. Um, they're not scared of the competition because then again, the market is not mature enough. For these blue ocean companies, we tend to push them more towards the Western world and especially the US. Because, I mean, U.S. has almost all the early adapters in the world and all the enterprise budget in the world. So if you are in a company that you believe is in a blue ocean space and we are also in the same page with the entrepreneur, we try to push them towards U.S. to gain traction from the U.S. We did one investment into Hungary, as you know, um, Avatau. I'm sure you know the founder, Mark. That was our only investment to Hungary from Five Fund Startups Istanbul. 
But when I look into the Hungarian ecosystem, I see a lot of capital uh, with Jeremy Funds, then EIF, um, then High Ventures, the Hungarian Innovation Ventures, put so much capital that there's more capital than entrepreneurs, which would, of course, limit the opportunity for outside investors like ourselves. What's your take on that? How do you view the Hungarian ecosystem? I think uh, my view is very similar to that. What I like to say is that, you know, currently in the Hungarian market, there are just more Eskimos than animals. So it's just uh, <laughs> it's just basically a funny place to uh, be as an investor at the moment. Uh, I think the, the big problem with, with, the, with a lot of capital is that actually it makes entrepreneurs a bit lazy. So they start, uh, you know, um, having less traction and just expecting more from the VCs. Uh, and that's not very good. But on the other hand, it also has like educational, uh, an educational effect. So all of the, the equity culture that is missing from the post-Soviet countries is actually sort of developing in some ways. I believe those public funds have a huge social impact. And I'm sure that that uh, positive social impact will come into place maybe a decade from now. But talking about the current situation, it means that there's less opportunity for uh, outside and foreign investors to jump in and do some investments in the ecosystem. And I view Poland similar to Hungary. Um, it's, there's a lot of capital in Poland. Uh, but the difference is, since it's a much bigger country, we see a lot of more entrepreneurs that pop up in different cities. Um, that's a positive. A negative is, since it's a much larger country, a lot of these entrepreneurs also think local. So there's much more local deal flow that's only focusing on the Polish market. And um, we want to invest into Poland, but we do not want to invest into a Polish entrepreneurs that's, go that's going for the um, Polish market alone. What's your take on Poland? Are you looking into it? Yeah, we're looking into Poland very actively. We actually have an office in Warsaw as well, with one of my colleagues uh, sitting there uh, permanently. So we have two Polish investments, uh, which are, you know, uh, some of the like, well, most well-known startups in Poland. One of them is Grobots, the other one is Estimote. Um, and, uh, you know, I worked for a Polish company myself, a company called Dogplanner, just raised $80 million. Uh, I think, you know, Poland has a lot of potential. So it's not, it's not like... Polish entrepreneurs are just developing uh, for Poland. Like if you look at Docklander guys, they came from a, a, a very regional player to be a very global player, basically with an M&A acquisition. They acquired their largest competitor worldwide. So now they're worldwide the biggest subscription uh, or scheduling software for doctors. Yeah, they also acquired a company in Turkey, um, but it didn't work out well. Any Hekim, yeah. <laughs> Any Hekim, yeah. Any Hekim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's like with, with every M&A, right? Like maybe 70% of M&A acquisitions end up being not very useful. Yeah, yeah. And the other 30% might turn out like Instagram or YouTube. So you never know. Last time I saw you physically was in Romania like a month ago or so. Um, I'm also looking into the Romanian ecosystem. After UiPath, I guess there's a lot of foreign investors that are trying to pour money into Romania. Actually, we're just doing one investment in Romania now. Uh, we're probably going to close it next week. Um so Romania, I would say there's not that much capital compared to Poland or Hungary. Um, there's just new EIF funds that's coming up, uh, but not so many of them. But then again, I was expecting to see more um, entrepreneurs while I was there for two weeks, I guess. So I didn't see as many as I would like to. What's your take on um, Romania? Are you guys doing investments there? We invested into a company where one of the founders is coming from Romania, but the company is New York based. It's a company called Chili Piper, a very successful company. Uh, in the sort of B2B call scheduling space. Actually, I really like Romania. So Romania is like the entrepreneurs there, they're just like pretty cool. So they actually have to fight this, uh, this situation where there is not a lot of capital available or traditionally there was not a lot of capital available. 
now the situation is changing uh, you know slowly and i think you know this need uh, that they have or or this kind of uh, pressure that they have because of the lack of funding actually makes them more creative so they need to push for more they need to you know just reach more and then when it comes to fundraising traditionally they had to also go out of the country and uh, kind of find uh, additional sources of funding uh, there and you know having larger traction actually helps a lot so VCs like companies that don't need money. The less money a company needs, the more VCs want to invest. True, true. And then Bulgaria, I guess, is similar to Romania. It's much smaller, but there are like there's our good friend Stefan, who's been doing a launch hub for almost a decade now. There's Brightcap that just launched its fund one, uh, thanks to EIF. Um, so it's similar to Romania, only two funds, uh, but less number of entrepreneurs given the just scale of the country. We did two investments in Bulgaria. But I believe Bulgaria is also one country that we would focus on with Fund2. Did you guys do any investments in Bulgaria? Is it in your core region? We're looking at companies in Bulgaria very actively. It's also one of the largest markets within this uh, region with uh, in terms of number of peoples. I think there's a lot of hidden potential. Again, the same thing with Romania. You know, Traditionally, founders had to go out and raise funds from, uh, from elsewhere. There is a large success story in Bulgaria already with Telerik which was sold a couple of years ago. Uh, so, you know, there is a positive sort of example. And, and what, what the good thing about it is that this give back culture has already started. So the Telerik founder guys, they actually uh, do the angel investments and launched funds there themselves. Slowly, this ecosystem is actually gonna improve a lot as well. And the number of good investment opportunities is gonna rise in the coming years. From a entrepreneurial opportunity perspective, I saw Greece, similar to Bulgaria. But the problem with Greece is, I guess, just from a VC perspective, from an outside external VC perspective, there's a lot of new funds. There's six funds that emerged uh, with EIF or by EIF. So it's becoming much more competitive. I guess Greece will become like Hungary or Poland in the coming years in terms of that. But I know you don't do Greece yourself. Um, And then there's this one country called Ukraine, uh, which is huge. A lot of people, a lot of engineers, a lot of founders. Um, a lot of companies that bootstrap their, their way to 100k or even 200k monthly revenues. Do you guys look into Ukraine? We actively look into Ukraine and I feel like Ukraine has a bigger potential than almost all the other countries in Southeast Europe combined. I agree. So Ukraine is the true underdog. So it's basically the company where there is a lot of uh, you know, software talent. There are a lot of smart guys uh, and there's not a lot of capital that is like being invested in Ukraine. So that's why people that, that want to make it big, they actually have to leave the country. So this is what we see a lot. But even local entrepreneurs, they create like, amazing startups sometimes. Uh, actually, we, we invested in Ukraine uh, in a company called AllRight.io. So, you know, we believe in the engineering talent there. And, and I think it's, it's definitely something worth uh, looking into in the future as well. I, what I like about Ukraine also is that it has a decentralized ecosystem, meaning the ecosystem is spread around different cities. Um, you go to Kharkiv, you meet with entrepreneurs, you go to Lviv, Odessa. Um, there's a lot of these um, ecosystems in every single city you go to in Ukraine, which isn't the case um, in, say, Greece or Bulgaria, unfortunately. It is like that in Romania, but I, Ukraine is a whole new level. You guys also look into Turkey. So, um, A, how do you feel the Turkish ecosystem is? B, are you guys going to be actively investing into Turkey in the coming years? I think, you know, Turkey is a very interesting country. Unfortunately, it had some setbacks in the recent months, years, uh, due to, you know, uh, currency devaluation and all this other adversity that you guys faced. Uh, but I believe in the entrepreneurial talent coming out of Turkey. The one funny thing is that we noticed with Turkish companies is that they're really good salesmen. 
So sometimes they're even really? too good sometimes. Like sometimes looking into the numbers, uh, they don't really, <laughs> you know, match up what we uh, expect later on. So when we do like sort of pre-due diligence, uh, then the numbers actually are a bit different than <laughs> what, uh, what people said. That's really worrying. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's in a good way, right? So, but I believe in Turkey, I believe in Turkish entrepreneurial talent. And I think, you know, once you sort of overcome these setbacks, which actually can make you stronger even, this region is like very unique in the way that we actually have to face a lot of these difficulties, right? And even, even facing these difficulties, we can make it sometimes. So uh, I think that's the message for Turkey as well. And that's the message for all the people in Central Eastern Europe that, you know, this actually will make you stronger and you'll be much better than all these other guys that have everything at uh, their fingertips because you actually had to fight harder, but will be like a better company after all. Interestingly, when we started the fund about three years ago, I would say 80% of our deal flow was uh, locally oriented companies. So companies that are going for the Turkish local market. But as a fund, we wanted to invest into companies with a global appeal. Fast forward three years, given what happened with the economy and the currency, I would say around 50%, maybe even 60% of our deal flow is entrepreneurs with global ambitions, which is good, which shows how like these problems made, made them stronger. People adapt and people want to go outside their own country. People want to hedge the risks within the country while also using the talent base of the country. So my last question to you would be, what about Glocal? What makes you excited about Glocal? Why are you a part of the podcast? And uh, what's coming in the next episodes? So Glocal, I think, you know, when I first heard the idea, when you pitched it to me, it was, it was, it, it sort of intrigued me immediately because I think there is a missing link between entrepreneurs and VCs. And also there is a missing link between entrepreneurs that have sort of made it and entrepreneurs that want to make it. So I think Glocal is like a very good, uh, uh, very good project that will sort of help this in the future so that people actually have some first-hand experience of, uh, of the experiences of all of these people that have either exited or have built a huge company or just made it uh, against all odds, you know? And I think, you know, what I especially like about the concept is that it's international, right? So it's not just in a local language because you have many articles about Turkish founders, Hungarian founders, etc., but you don't have it in English. And so this will actually help to put, you know, all of these people together from different regions, have sort of a cohesion, and then Romanian founders can listen to Turkish founders, you know, Turkish founders can listen to Austrian founders. It's very interesting, you know, it's like, it's like uh, something that has never uh, been created before. Also, you know, putting it in contrast with the US, because all the materials that you read about venture capital, it's mostly about US or UK uh, VCs writing about stuff. You know, Eastern European VCs, they're kind of, they, they, they don't put out a lot of materials and a lot of articles about how we think and how we do stuff. And so in the coming episodes, we'll, we'll, we'll talk with Hungarian entrepreneurs, we'll talk with Austrian entrepreneurs, and we'll talk with another couple of entrepreneurs from, the, from around the region. And I think those will uh, help uh, to, to kind of make this cohesion. And also my personal goal is also to bring, you know, VCs and founders a bit more together. I have a video series where I'm trying to explain some of the stuff that VCs do in a more understandable format called CE.VC. So, uh, you know, I think together with the podcast, it's like very good educational series that will help entrepreneurs to, to just be more educated about all of this landscape. It's great to hear about your passion. Uh, while I was starting Glocal, my main ambition was I hear a lot of um, stories and I recognize patterns into how companies scaled outside their own country. But a lot of these um, strategies that are 
speaking inside closed rooms are confidential, so I cannot disclose them. I cannot um, give out stories of how founders persevered and they made it. Uh, but you know who can? The founders themselves. I actually shoot these podcasts, the founders themselves will be telling the stories and then these stories will be publicly available. I'm looking forward to the upcoming episodes and thanks again for joining it. Thank you for inviting me. This was a good episode to learn more about the Central Eastern European landscape. And as previously mentioned, Martin will act as my co-host in the coming episodes we're going to shoot in Hungary and Austria. As usual, you can reach us on our website, theglocal.co. You can reach us on Instagram at theglocalpodcast. And you can reach me personally on Twitter at Enes Hulli. See you in the next episode. Glocal, podcast on locally incubated global technology powerhouses. <laughs>